That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 343. It's titled... Why the Productivity Slowdown Could Lead to Lower Living Standards. I recently got an email from a listener that wanted my opinion on what he described as a curious moral question. He writes, I am a surgeon in my 40s with what most people would consider the ideal job at a huge academic medical center and at the top of my game. I had always planned to work like I was retired expecting this career to bring me the interest, fulfillment, and satisfaction and reward that exemplified retirement. But the rapid corporization of our hospitals, not just privatization, but truly focusing on profits and upsizing just to stay afloat, has turned my vocation into a job. And while many of our healthcare systems are nonprofits, this is, of course, a tax status and bears little resemblance to what is actually going on. I have found myself planning for a very early retirement, and I'm grateful to your podcast in helping me to this goal. However, there is, of course, a degree of guilt when I consider that I may cut short 20 years of potential service to others in doing so. When I speak to others in hushed voices in the corridors, 95% of my colleagues are feeling the same. Many, however, are not in the position to exit and so remain frustrated, but that's another story. My question is this, are there some parts of society that should not follow the Friedman Doctrine that the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits? I wonder if the negative feelings we are seeing in healthcare are the result of an intrinsically humanistic profession falling prey to the need of increased profits. And in doing so, are we ruining the altruism which is essential in civilized society? There's a lot to unpack there and a number of different directions I could go in this podcast and future podcast in answering his concerns. In this episode, I want to focus on profits and what leads to profits and what I believe is leading to some of his frustrations with his profession. Profits, the net income, are revenue, less expenses. And even if it's a not-for-profit, they at least try to break even. The way that profits are increased is to charge or sell more, to spend less, or for a business to allow sales to increase more than expenses. When we produce more output, that leads to revenue, with a given level of input, the expenses, the effort, that means the individual or the company has become more productive. Greater productivity, producing more output per person is what leads to higher living standards. Across the economy, that that total output is measured by gross domestic product, GDP. It is the monetary value of all the goods and services produced during a given period. If we take that 
total output or GDP on a per-person basis per capita, that is the measure of living standards, the output per person. That GDP per person is a function of how many hours each person works and how much output they can produce per hour. For the surgeon, I wonder what the standard is. Does he feel like he's being pushed to produce more surgeries per hour? Or is it other type of output, administrative items that he really knew there would be some as part of of his career, but has become so oppressive that it's perhaps not even leading to the type of output that is desired, successful surgeries. Over long periods of time, the total GDP or economic output is certainly a function of how many workers. If there are more workers working longer hours, that will lead to greater output, greater GDP, greater wealth, greater income. But the way to really increase wealth and income is for workers to be able to produce more per hour worked. In the U.S., productivity has definitely increased over the past century. In a really helpful report by the Hamilton Project titled The Slowdown in Productivity Growth and Policies That Can Restore It, co-authors were Emily Moss, Ryan Nunn, and Jay Shambaugh. They write, 100 years ago, roughly 50% of the U.S. working age population had a job. Just prior to the 2020 recession, 61% of those over age 16 were employed. But those people tend to work about 40 hours per week. Well below the 50 hours per week, people typically labored a century ago. As a result, the total number of hours worked per person is roughly the same today as it was a century ago. Yet the output per capita in the United States has grown more than sixfold during that time. They continue, we are not working more, but we are working far more productively, which has generated mass increases in living standards over the past century. They point out that people have more food and resources, better health care and housing, more consumer products that weren't even considered 100 years ago when cars were just starting to become more predominant. It's the innovation and productivity that drives living standards. It's a topic we've covered in earlier episodes, such as episode 142, Why Are Some Nations Wealthier Than Others? We discussed it in episode 231, Why Do Some People Make More Than Others? It comes down to productivity. Countries that are able to do produce more per person are able to pay more per person, even if the jobs are similar from one country to the other. There's just more income. Wage growth correlates closely with productivity growth. When productivity is increasing faster, wages also increase faster, although that might not be the case for every single person. There's been a trend in the U.S. over the last 40 to 50 years of productivity growth slowing, which we'll get to. But not only that, it's not leading to improved job opportunities and higher earnings for most workers anymore. MIT recently released a report that looked at why that was the case. Why, as productivity has increased, we're not seeing wages increase for all workers. They point out three forces. Technological change, globalization pressures, and institutional changes. By technological change, they're referring to the digitalization of work. Computers, the internet, 
It's made higher educated workers more productive. That same technology has made it easier for less educated workers to be replaced by machinery. In addition, that technology has allowed innovative ideas to scale rapidly, where entrepreneurs and entertainers can amass vast fortunes, where there are large rewards for top talent in many sectors. But there's also been globalization pressures, the ability of companies to outsource to cheaper sources of labor. There's been less unionization, the ability to negotiate higher wages. Less unionization is an example of an institutional change. One of the task force members in that MIT report, Christine Wally, said employees find themselves increasingly outsourced, subcontracted, working part-time or on-demand with less leverage and fewer worker protections. So productivity has been slowing in the U.S. According to the Hamilton Project report, output per hour has only grown at 1.4% per year, about half of the pace that it grew in the three decades after World War II. What contributes to productivity increases is greater worker skill, human capital, workers becoming more educated, becoming smarter in how they go about their work. The second aspect is more physical capital, Goods that assist in the production of goods or providing a service. This can include equipment, machines, buildings. And the third is a combination of factors, what is known as total factor productivity. It's output that can't be explained by increases in labor, human capital, physical capital. It's a measure that falls out of the estimate of GDP and productivity. It can include technology improvements, better management. And that third factor is the most important in the long run because that's innovation, which is unlimited. Why is productivity slowing where we're not getting the increases, particularly in total factor productivity? There are a number of reasons. The Hamilton Project authors say the reasons is overdetermined. There are too many explanations, and there's a lot of overlapping ones. So I'll highlight some that I thought were interesting. The first is mismeasurement. Economic statistics are estimates. They're not perfect. And so it's possible that GDP, productivity, and inflation are not being measured correctly. For example, if inflation is overstated, inflation is actually lower than what the statistics say, that would mean real GDP after adjusting for inflation is higher than the official numbers, which means productivity is higher. What could lead to inflation being overstated? Well, the statisticians might not capture all the quality improvements. Think of smartphones. Smartphones are able to do more and more. They have greater memory. The speed is faster. There are more apps that are useful. When statisticians estimate inflation, they take into account those quality improvements. An iPhone might cost slightly more than it did 10 years ago, but it is much more powerful. And so it's possible after adjusting for quality improvements that smartphones prices have fallen over time. 
So if quality improvements aren't captured correctly, then inflation could be overstated, which means GDP is understated and productivity could be higher than what we assume. Another reason productivity growth could be slowing is there's a shift in the industry mix that more workers are moving to less productive areas of the job market. We could see that as the economy becomes more service-oriented, where it's more difficult to gain some of the efficiencies that you could in manufacturing. It is possible we've hit a wall when it comes to innovation and productivity increases. The economist Robert Gordon proposes this theory. He says when we look at the technological progress in the early years of the 20th century, the internal combustion engine, sanitations, that they had a bigger impact on productivity than the innovations that we see today. It's possible we're seeing a delay in productivity growth as it takes time for some of these technologies to develop, like artificial intelligence and machine learning, to be used in producing goods and services. It could simply be a lack of investment due to the recessions that we've had, where it takes time to recoup and to start investing more. Or there just could be simply not enough research and development funding, particularly by governments. Federal R&D spending in the U.S. has declined as a percent of GDP. It was 1.6% in 1960. It was 1.1% of GDP in 1980. And today it's only about 0.6% of GDP. A lot of that research funding was on basic R&D that led to longer-term innovations that businesses were able to take advantage of. Productivity growth could be slowing because there's been a lack of investment in infrastructure. Roads, railways, airports, maybe that's slowing down production due to traffic jams, for example. In 1960, the federal government spent 2.9% of GDP on transportation and water infrastructure. Today, it's about 2.3%. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com slash david. netsuite.com slash david. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? 
or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. It's possible the patent system has led to slower growth and productivity. Patents are extremely useful. They allow inventors to profit from their innovation and to earn monopoly-like profits for a while because of all the R&D spending. But if patents are issued on only marginal improvements and we get what's known as a patent thicket where it's difficult to do anything without running into somebody's patent on something maybe it seems particularly obvious— I didn't realize, for example, that Amazon got a patent for one-click ordering. Now, maybe one-click ordering is intellectual property that should be protected, but to me, that seems very obvious. But too many patents could lead to this patent thicket, where it's just difficult to innovate because there's just too much patent protection. There could be too many regulations that are slowing productivity increases. There could be less market dynamism, more monopolistic type companies where the bigger get bigger and they're able to, through political will, keep their power. And there's just not sufficient competition that leads to greater increases in productivity. And the final reason is maybe it's just administrative bureaucracy, that workers are spending too much time working on the wrong things and they're getting interrupted too much. Many workers moved to work from home because of the pandemic. There was a fascinating study by co-authors Gibbs, Mengel, and Seamroth titled Work from Home and Productivity, Evidence from Personnel and Analytics Data on IT Professionals. This was a study over 17 months of a company with 10,000 employees. These employees were actually tracked through software what they were working on, how many hours were they working, and as a result, these academics were able to gauge how productive the workers were before the pandemic and then once they moved to work from home. They found that for this IT services company, that total hours worked increased by roughly 30%, including an increase of 18% during normal business hours, but that the average output didn't increase. So they were working more and not producing more. And as a result, productivity fell about 20%. They were spending more time on coordination activities, the number of meetings they had, but their time of uninterrupted work actually shrank. They spent less time networking, less time being coached one-on-one -on -one with supervisors. The authors write, despite the disruption due to the pandemic and shift to work from home, there was no significant change in measured output. In other words, employees continued to meet their goals, which were not changed after the switch to work from home. The workers spent way more time on video conferences and less time working without being interrupted. The administrative burden on workers is increasing. Their interruptions are increasing. Their ability to actually focus is being reduced. Cal Newport, in his recent book, A World Without Email, 
discuss the hive mind, how companies work in really frantic ways. They're on Slack all the time. They're in email all the time, trying to move the work forward. But the coordination is just burdening everybody. And then with the advent of the computer and other technology, an entire layer of support staff has gone away. Newport writes, knowledge workers with highly trained skills and the ability to produce high-value output with their brains spend much of their time wrangling with computer systems, scheduling meetings, filling out forms, fighting with word processors, struggling with PowerPoint, and of course, above all, sending and receiving digital messages from everyone about everything at all times. We think we're advanced because we no longer need secretaries or typing pools, but we don't factor in how much less bottom-line boosting work we actually accomplish. I wonder how much this surgeon spends on doing those type of activities rather than interacting with patients or performing surgery. The McKinsey Global Institute recently released a report where they believe that productivity should increase in the next three years because of all the digitalization and other measures that were taken. They estimate by about one percentage points per year. That's significant if it was only growing at 1.4% per year. It's double the pre-pandemic rate of productivity growth. That would lead to higher living standards. I don't know if that will happen just because of the way work is structured. It's not structured in a productive way at least non-manufacturing work. Workers being measured by how busy they are rather than their ability to actually focus and produce value, to create the innovations that lead to higher productivity. I recently finished the book Effortless by Greg McEwen. His first book was Essentialism, which was about doing the right things. This book is about doing it in the right way where we're trying to simplify the process of our work, trying to have what he calls an effortless state where we clear the clutter. We actually have time and the emotional bandwidth to produce good work. As the Hamilton Project report mentioned, the reason for slowing productivity growth is overdetermined. So many explanations. It's probably some of all. Maybe it's a measurement issue. Maybe productivity growth hasn't slowed down. We, our GDP is actually measured higher because inflation is measured wrong. We discussed inflation in last week's episode. I think for each of us, though, we need to think about our personal work. Can we become more productive? Not by working harder and potentially burning out, but by simplifying our work, focusing on what's most important and finding a better way to do that a simpler way to achieve the results we want, where we eliminate unnecessary steps that maybe were there just from tradition or because somebody's asking for that step. But is there a better, more efficient way? Not efficiency just for the sake of efficiency, but to be less burdened, to work more effortlessly, as McEwen outlines in his book. I hope that this surgeon finds a new path. I don't think he should feel guilty if he decides to retire early. I suspect he won't just end up golfing the rest of his life. He'll find a way where he'll take what he learned as a surgeon and apply it in some other domain. But if his vocation, what he loves to do, has become just a mere job, then it's time to move on and find a different way, to plot a different course. And I wish him the best in doing that. 
That then is episode 343. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, becoming a better investor, there's two ways I can help with that. First, consider signing up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. It's where I share about that week's episode. I share the notes and research materials that I use to prepare it and share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to help you become a better investor. When you sign up for The Insider's Guide, you'll get my free guide, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. This is a summary of the key points from my book by the same name. The second way I can help is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Plus membership gives you essential portfolio tools, training, and a community to invest with confidence and achieve your financial goals. There's over 1,000 Money for the Rest of Us Plus members. They continue as members because they get access to a proven investment approach and expert portfolio insights delivered in a clear and concise style they can understand. Here's some of what you get with Plus Membership. Global multi-asset class portfolio examples. A monthly investment conditions and strategy report to help you keep your emotions in check. An exclusive member-only podcast called Money for the Rest of Us Plus, as well as an ad-free version of the regular podcast. And with both of those podcasts, you get written transcripts. Plus Membership includes best-in-class video lessons, portfolio-building tools and templates, as well as access to my portfolio holdings and trades. You'll be able to interact with other members in the member forum and ultimately get the tools and the community you need to feel confident in your investing. Plus Membership is a voice of calm and reason amidst the chaos. We'd love to have you as a member. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.